0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the What is Money show. I'm sitting down today with Mr. Neil Passero. Neil, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert. Great to be here. Great to have you, man. Um, we we're just talking offline how you put together a very robust outline for us to start exploring money as a conversation and a little bit about how we live in relation to money, or who am I in relation to money, as you put it. So maybe we just open with a question there. Who who am I in relation to money? What does that question mean to you? Well,
1: money is language. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Money is defined by uh, words, and money has meaning. Uh, out there in the world. But for me and for us, uh, money is related to the language we're using about it. Uh, Mm -hmm. Conversations with ourselves, conversations with each other about uh, what it is, how we use it, uh, what it means, especially from our past. We're human beings and Humans are are historical beings, and so our past and our relationship to what has happened with money in the past may very well be our future, Mm -hmm. especially if we don't consider the language that we're using uh, around around that that topic. So really what, what I'd like to offer is that we create a future in relationship to money in terms of the language that we use. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I like, you know, it's been called
0: the language of value by a lot of great thinkers. Um, And I've explored a bit of this in my writing with this connection between the logos, um, which is a very ancient idea. You know, if you translate the logos from Greek, it means word or ratio. So the connection I was trying to tease out or in words, like typically they have meaning relative to each other, right? It's the context and the grammar in which we're using these tools, these psychotechnologies to communicate. Um, but with money, its main feature, I guess, is the communication of prices. And prices are well, those two in the same way that words have a ratio of meaning. Prices are just conveying an exchange ratio, basically denominated in this universal language of money. And then I, I think you've actually taken it a step further when you're saying the conversations are also with ourselves, um, which is true because we're planning in money, we're thinking in money, we're, you know, there's it's it's like a mental software we're using to deal with the world in many ways. So where <sighs> this idea This is kind of complicated to say. This idea that money is not an idea, it's more of something that that arises in conversation, right? It's like an emergent property of two actors interacting. Where does that come from?
1: Is this a philosophical idea? Or or maybe you could just expound upon that a little bit. Sure. So so money exists out there in the world, right? We've got uh, money... That uh, has all sorts of forms, physical forms. The 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 thoughts about money are an internal experience. Now, in between that are commonly two people or mm-hmm. the market having a conversation to identify prices. So you can look at the, the the marketplace as people making offers and requests that help to sort out, especially over time and with with. Uh, of large numbers of transactions, you start to get a, a, a picture of, of what is real out there in the market. Mm-hmm. So for, for ourselves internally, the, the idea is, you know, language that we use helps to create our reality. These are mm-hmm. philosophical concepts, there's, there's, you know, thousands of years worth of history uh, of philosophy of people trying to sort out, you know, what is it to be human? Um, some people uh, label this as existentialism. There's ontological thought, and there's a whole variety of philosophers that have that have put these ideas together. And I think it's worth considering uh, how these ideas uh, help us to to paint a picture of our relationship to money, especially in the idea that that money is a conversation uh, about the future. And if we let the color pat the, the past color. Uh, that conversation—it's very, very different than if we're inventing something from a from a place now uh, about the future. Mm. That's interesting. I wonder too
0: if money is a language; it's a communication tool. Um, you know, clearly, the tool that's closer to truth would be more useful because if you're communicating i think the purpose of communication is largely typically to communicate the truth so you can coordinate with other people right you can take information you may have gathered through sensorial experience and actually connect that to someone else um, such that you could you could then coordinate your actions together right it's effectively what a market is doing so how do you think then if money is a conversation, how does the type of money we are using influence the nature of that conversation?
1: Hmm. It's a good question. I think culturally, you know, different folks use different types of currencies. I, years ago, I learned that um, the the Zapatista uh, tribe in Mexico. Um, came on the radar in the 90s and I was really intrigued by by first of all their use of technology to spread their message that that they were that they were communicating um, outside of the politics so what I learned was that their relationship to to work was to create time the mm-hmm. community was really a primary asset uh, for that that group being together mm-hmm. uh, so really the the wages were not, the wages I knew, the wages were to have more time to hang out. And that really influenced how I I think about what work is and why I work. Um, and it really strongly influenced my, my, my own personal thinking um, about um, you know, how I engage with my my labor and skills in the marketplace. Um, so I'd say, you know, the the short answer is is, you know, money is very cultural. Um, and it's also it's very personal. Mm.
0: Yeah, maybe this explains to kind of the feedback it has into culture itself. Uh, you know, there's a long literature of of Austrian economics exploring this concept of a when fiat doesn't have to be fiat, when money starts to be inflated very rapidly, the population suffering under that inflation tends to experience moral degradation, right? People and there's a direct consequence here where if money's losing its value really rapidly, you're just incentivized to spend it. But it seems like there might be something a little more subtle where it's actually the character, the economic character of the money is somehow influencing the personal character of its users. Um, What is that? So maybe if we're using the analogy of language, like how does the type of language we I'm, I'm reminded here of, I think it's the Whorf Saper hypothesis or linguistic relativity. You may have never heard of this, but I don't know. They, they've put forth this um, hypothesis that the language you speak, actually determines what thoughts you can create. So I wonder how money might influence our thinking as well.
1: Yes. You know, I, I have a very different reaction personally to seeing Bitcoin drop 30% in one day than I see myself experiencing when the equities markets drop 30% in one day. Those are those mean very, very different things. And, and that's related to something about them and my relationship to say mm-hmm. Bitcoin and the equity markets. And and what I would throw out there is that this is related to mood. The concept mm-hmm. of mood being the the state that I am that can be temporary associated with a situation. Um, in some cases, moods become more fixed and become more personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so e- either way, what I'm doing is, When I react and relate to money, I am either opening a future or I'm closing it off based on my interpretation commonly of of some sort of body sense, Uh, something I see, something I hear, maybe my gut rumbles, um, maybe I taste something, maybe I smell something that reminds me. Right of of the past, um, and and therefore I project into the future and and create a reality uh, around whatever might be happening. So so I think that you know having spent some time looking for how do I relate to money myself and how do I relate to um, time and work, aging, um, and and being mortal, the the this idea of I. Experience things, and I make an assessment, and that assessment is about the future. And that is an assessment about the future that is either opening the future or it's closing off a future for me. Mm -hmm. And that is the essence of what mood is. So I think there's a mood, we all each have our own individual relationships. Ah uh, with money, and also the situations that we that we uh, encounter in time with money, inflation being one, uh, gaining money uh, or or losing money. these are these are you know common human recurring experiences, and I think it's worth taking a look at and 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 poking out a little bit.
0: Interesting. I'm reminded when you describe the opening towards the future or closing, um, this came up in my conversation with John Ravakey that he described love as a reciprocal opening. So you're, I guess, through you know, like a positive sum interaction. Could be economic trade, could be uh, romantic love, I guess. You're actually increasing the possibility space between two people. And then he described addiction as actually the opposite. It's a reciprocal narrowing. So, you know, he gave the example of a guy that drinks alcohol because he's, you know, lost his job or has some bad issue in his life. And then the actual drinking reinforces the bad issue, which causes him to drink more. So um, is that related then? Is mood connected to this idea of of love or, or addiction? I mean, it, um, I'm trying to understand what. Is mood something we scale into our lives? You said mood can actually become your character over time. So, is that what you meant by that?
1: Yeah. So there, there's, there's a similarity between um, love, trust, and and faith in that these are like inner experiences that relate to the outer world but they're not really very easy to like pin down cognitively mm. right mm. like these are these are divine human experiences ineffable <clears throat> human experiences that you know gosh look at the art and 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 creative output that have stemmed from either the gaining of or the loss of any one of those three things mm. love trust and faith i mean this drives creative human output it is it is a you know maybe uh a a topic to introduce here now is like the idea of like human energy we've Mm -hmm. we've covered you know extensively the the idea of energy with with michael saylor i mean Mm -hmm. there's a lot of energy and mechanical energy uh, in the world that you guys covered. now, the the human energy um, is is related to the 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 creativity of capturing all that energy through all that historical uh, survey that you guys that you guys covered. So I'd say, you know, arguably love, trust, and faith uh, are that sort of incredible, is it even limited, human source of energy? that that makes us who we are and Mm -hmm. and so money is inextricably linked with that because money is how we're establishing uh uh conversations about how you know values as well as value uh, out there in the world they're they're all tied together so um you know i think that's really at the core of the idea here yeah that's a i like the idea of
0: distinguishing between value and values, because that is if we think that, you know, a successful entrepreneur, he's created a business that has satisfied uh, wants for people in the world. He is rewarded with that endeavor with economic value. So people are buying his good or service and he's enriched economically. But there's another side to this as well, where it's actually As a result of him, I guess, ascending the socioeconomic hierarchy in terms of just wealth, he's now more strongly imprinting his personal values on the world, right? You could just think any, you know, pick a Ray Dalio, Jeff Bezos, any rich guy. It's like whatever personal values they hold now uh it's much louder, right? That whatever values they hold are much louder to the world. They're, they're leading by example, I guess you might say. Hmm. So trust, faith and love. Trust is an interesting one too, because what you know we need to trust one another <laughs> ideally in our small little circles, but trust also doesn't scale. Or you can't just trust the you know all eight billion of us. We need trust minimized media like money to to do to get on to do business together. Um, so how do you think money has a relationship with trust? And if so, what is it?
1: Well, it's it's written right on there. I mean, the word big T word is is on the bill, right? Mm. So it's directly you know in logos related. Now, philosophically, how how is is trust and money, um, you know, having having heard so much of your work, like yeah, if if why would I work harder, right? If if my income is capped, mm-hmm. that's closing a future. That's a question I might you know create for myself if someone says, hey you know, for a week's worth of work, I can only do this, Mm -hmm. that, that may for one person be a huge opening. Uh, for me, it may be a closing based on, you know, how I value my own time and where my, uh, uh, values are in terms of time with family versus time out of the house. So, um, these, these things are, you know, definitely part of that inner conversation about how we're, you know, navigating the world and and coordinating with other people to to create agreements, to to align and to create commitments uh, to each other. If if that mechanism is faulty, if if you know you don't pay me in a timely manner, and I know you never do, well, I'm going to relate to that relationship very very differently um, than if uh, well one of my uh, friends, fathers, you know, this guy just, he pays everybody right there on time. That's his whole thing. And well, he happens to be a billionaire also. Mm-hmm. So there's something about that relationship. Uh, I am going to guess if you speak to people that are incredibly successful, there are values that are, that are tied there. The money is a outcome of, you know, what I call the, the spirit of service, like truly wanting to to help other people, and that be the the driving force. So there's there's something from inside of a person that wants to help other people. You could argue that's love. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people have, and uh, there's good there's good you know biological and and uh, uh, evolutionary evidence that that humans and love. Um, you know have have existed together and, and maybe fundamental to to who we are so super successful people they're not working for the money they're they're working to do something that they are called to do something that is mm-hmm. like a a higher purpose um, that could be faith that could be a whole number of other things that drive them forward but i I'd, I'd venture to say there's commonly a theme there that 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 uh, pulls those, incredibly successful people to be of service to others. And as a result are rewarded. Uh, It's pretty uncommon where people are rewarded when there truly isn't something valuable, uh, you know, uh, provided to another person. Mm. So yeah, value and values, I think those are, those are, they're important things that I don't think we, we speak enough about. They're almost kind of like, you know, perceived as not related, but, but this idea of being of service to other people being what work is and really, you know, how we trade, uh, uh our, our time for, for goods and, and wages and, and compensation of various different sorts. And I think that, that that's, it's, it's worth taking a good look at. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So that, um, act of service as you described it or, or coming from a place of wanting to serve others that in and of itself is an act of faith right because you're you're giving without any certainty of getting so to speak but to your point it's those who act honestly through that faith are the ones that really do well they create a lot of value for others and then it comes back to them somehow
1: yeah. There's a bigger word here too. It's it's courage. If mm. you've seen Paul Tillich's work, uh, the courage to be. He's a Christian theologian and and philosopher. Like it's it's a it's a powerful idea to be courageous and put yourself out there to to lean over the brink. He mm. says in his book, and you know, still smile.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I,
0: oh, I'm trying to recall where I read or talked about this recently, but it was. They are making the point that courage is the primary virtue because without courage, you cannot practice any of the other virtues. Huh. Um, and again, back to tie it back to Austrian economics, you know, Mises will make the point that there's no such thing as a non-speculative action, that everything we are doing, we cannot know the outcome. All we can do is use our reason to try to take the best course of action possible and then have faith <laughs> That we've chosen properly. So, yeah, it's it's typically associated with religion, but I think you know faith is just an inextricable component of human action. We can't even. You could take this to the extreme and say you can't even take a step without having faith that your legs going to work, something like that. Um. So how? I mean, okay. How then do you, I wanted to walk through each of the three of these, ask you about trust. So how do you think about faith then in terms of really any, any terms you want, but I was just thinking in terms of being or uh, perhaps as it relates to, you know, day-to-day human action.
1: Yeah. Well, trust, let's let's put that in the parking lot. We're going to come back. There's, there's lots to talk about what trust is. Um, and we can talk more about the moods as well. Um, Faith um you know faith for me i, I was raised Roman Catholic family's mm-hmm. Italian, and uh church was more of like a social uh environment for us it was community it really was mm-hmm. um our family have been business people in in our community here on the east coast for generations and and so um i I had my own you know. Healthy skepticism about God and those things and and that's the same thing with 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 love and with trust and with faith. Faith is in relationship to like not faith uh or or uh what it is it truly you know worthy of 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 merit um, of time and attention and energy so for me personally um you know, faith is—it's um, much more related to to people uh, and conversations for me. Um, for for example, I, you know, I was I was skeptical, maybe even like you know, curious about a lot of the sort of conspiracy theories, um, the the stuff that turns out, you know, Edward Snowden was made public. That was stuff I was really curious about, you know, telecommunications and spy networks and all this kind of stuff. What was real, the Echelon project. Mm-hmm. I was curious about this stuff. So when when 9/11 happened, uh I was on an airplane from San Francisco that morning. I literally was about to get on the airplane and they they shut everything down. Um so that that very much, you know, is 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 palpable. I was flying back to New York from San Francisco that day and I fled to the hills of Northern California, afraid for, oh gosh, they're coming for San Francisco next. This would be a next likely target. Mm-hmm. And oh gosh, what's gonna happen to New York now? People are gonna it's gonna descend into to a state of nature mm-hmm. and oh gosh, you know what what could happen? My mind was really creating that closed future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when I got back to New York nine days later and saw, like the the effervescence of love and people, like connected together, I, my spine, I'm tingling. Like as I think mm. back to that time, mm. it was so beautiful that my faith in humanity completely changed my view of who people are. Uh, that that future. Completely changed. So I'd say for me, that was like one of these pivotal real experiences that, um, you know, it's really hard to put into words, but, but is at the essence of, for me, what, what faith is. There's also the, the, you know, the incredible beauty of nature. I've been blessed to live in Northern California for the past 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, gosh, it's magnificent. And Mm -hmm. it's when you have those quiet moments, like, Somewhere incredible, the trees, the mountains, the lakes, the ocean, I mean, the desert. Mm-hmm. That's an experience of, of divinity for me that comes through nature uh, and 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 a deeper connection to nature because it was kind of the start of it. And then suddenly, one day I woke up, I'm like, hey, I'm nature. <laughs> oh, like, oh, snap. Like, oh, yes. So, you know, that uh, is a part of it. I studied Hindu philosophy for a while. I lived in, in Boston and became friends with um, a gentleman, Taigananda, who runs the chapel in Boston. He's the Hindu chaplain for MIT, Harvard, and, and I think Boston College, maybe BU as well. He and I got to be fast friends, and, and uh, I learned so much about that sort of non dual view of the world. Mm-hmm. That's where I really got introduced into, you know, kind of thinking more about how I think. Which is another topic that I'd really like to 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 poke on, you know, thinking about how we think um, you know, about money, but also just you know being aware of that. I think th- this is this is where reflection comes from. And some people reflect in prayer, some people reflect in meditation, some people reflect. While exercising, people mm. reflect in lots of different ways, and uh, you know, I think that's that's another really worthy human endeavor that that I would you know I'd shine a little bit on and say like reflect, it's good. Slow down. One of my mentors, a gentleman named Richard Condon, says to me all the time, he's like Neil, slow down, <laughs> and you know how nice that feels to be given the space to sit, stop, reflect. It really helps to, to bring more aliveness, uh, you know, for me personally. And uh and and so you know, I, I offer that as, as kind of a part of that, thinking about how we think and and remembering that we forget, also yeah. giving ourselves the grace that, you know, the monkey mind. Well, Taigananda, he said, I love this. You've heard the monkey mind, right? Of course, Everybody's yeah. heard the topic. Yeah. So, but the way he put it was the monkey mind drunk stung by a scorpion and the ghost has entered <sighs> that's human consciousness that's who we are and so remembering that we forget and and just you know keeping that cycle up has for me you know brought a tremendous sense of 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 just peace and equanimity and uh, uh, relief after being, you know, spending twenty-five years as a hard-charging entrepreneur chasing power and wealth and, you know, trying to appease everybody. You know, once I stopped and slowed down a little bit, uh, you know, that that helped a lot. So for for people out there that that have that feeling, um, uh, reflect, take some time, you know, take time. You've earned it. What do we work for anyway? I think I learned something from the Zapatistas. You know, time and hanging out with people to to connect uh and and maybe just to connect in a sense of respect, not for all that future action and, you know, creating stuff, just to to hang out and be with people. Um and and also then to, you know, create to to create community uh rather than try to create, you know, material wealth. Yeah, the that, that's what faith, you know, I think if I, that that's my faith riff. That's where I think it all boils down. And hanging out with other people, being connected with other people, um, and being able to uh, spend time and create futures together. Mm. Um, that's what it's all about. A, another great mentor said to me, you know, what is all this work stuff anyway? You know, if it's not just to hang out with people that you like. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. And yet, do we not? And I urge anyone who is tolerating dynamics with other people uh in, in work to be a cause in the matter and to uh uh create connection with people where they may perceive that that someone is you know not having their interests in mind. There's, there's, there's ways to do that. That's being candid with other people. And we can talk more about that too, this is all related to trust. Mm-hmm. And this is all related to creating trust, creating authentic trust, which is a really important distinction that, that a great teacher uh, and, and, and growing friend of mine named Fernando Flores has introduced me to um, in his work. It's his work around moods. It's his work around trust that is, has really helped to, um, put into language, uh, things that we all know, but, but I just didn't know that they were out there, nor had they been sort of articulated into something that, that, that we can use tools, psychotechnologies, tools mm. that we can use to create the world we want. Mm. I'm, I'm staggered by how is it that we as human beings we work so hard, and yet we we create a world we don't want. It is a mm-hmm. real paradox. Yeah. Well, how? Hmm. How
0: does that come to be? Because I mean, my general views on it, and I've shared this before. You've probably heard it, but this this universal proclivity for people to pursue something for nothing. Right. We're yeah. all trying to work and innovate and save you know put a little aside for a rainy day and this can be very basic right this could be from a state of nature you're just trying to have a few more berries or to a very sophisticated economy you're trying to you know put away for a retirement or a savings account of some kind and there's a moral line that can be crossed right like we can pursue something for nothing through voluntary trade and innovation which is to say is consensual on both sides right it's all consent it's all volition it's all um voluntarily voluntarily adopted action but that you can humans have this ability to cross that line in their pursuit of something for nothing where they will take from one another and that seems to me to be kind of the crux of it um but i'd love to hear how you think about that like how do why is it i think most people have you know very deep familiarity with this idea of trust and faith and love and these other timeless concepts or principles of, of human being, but we end up creating worlds that are very distant from those realities.
1: Yeah. The, the word intent, uh, Mm. comes up and I think it's related to that, that, that individual who sees a closed future for themselves and maybe, you know, drifts through, uh, abuse of a substance, whatever that may be, that could be sex. Uh, it could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be, it could be exercise fiat. in some cases. It could be fiat. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. it, it could be. So, so we, we feed that, 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 uh, addiction, um, in lots of different ways, you know, you can call that drifting, um, mm-hmm. for, for lack of a better term. Drifting out of present, drifting out of, you know, being sort of here in it. Mm -hmm. Um, And commonly, what we're doing there is we're trying to, you know, uh, deal with some sort of feelings that are there, maybe stuff about the past, but being commonly, you know, it's a discomfort Mm
0: -hmm. and a
1: distrust of our own bodies, Mm -hmm. which is, which is a really, really big one. Like to not be in relationship to your body, like, What else is there? If you can't trust your own body, how can you, you if you can't trust yourself, right? That's, you can't trust, you know, you you can't trust anybody. If you can't trust your own body, uh, how can you trust yourself, this cognitive monkey mind? And then, you know, how does that play out in the world? So, um, intent matters. If, If I have an intention, to create something that's a service to other people, or I have an intention to, ah, eh, you know, I won't get caught, or it doesn't matter if I mm-hmm. do this. This is the foundations of you know those 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 choices, right? We have lots of choices every second, right? Mm-hmm. We have these these choices if we so sort to of look at it, choose to look at it that way, um, to to decide how we're going to be, um, and. Uh, you know, this is, this is the foundation of, you know, a considered life. And, um, um, I, I think it's, it's, again, it's, it's related to that view of myself in the future. Like if, if I don't think I matter, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. why would I care about somebody else? If I don't think that, that I'm worthy, why would I consider someone else to be worthy? Hmm yeah so the intention really is the
0: origin point of action right it's um and again i'm always thinking about this through the economic lens but the austrians distinguish between the two uh you know human action is purposeful or has intent whereas they distinguish human action from human behavior which would be something that's much more reflexive what as in when the doctor hits your knee with a hammer and your leg kicks out, that's a behavior. Whereas, you know, you getting up and going to work in the morning is an action, right? It's a much more considered uh, course
1: of course of being. Absolutely. We're lucky Robert. Like we're in this era now where like there's incredible breakthroughs and, and new ideas around neuroscience um, and uh, uh, our, this amazing thing that happens between um a a brain and a mind there is you know just we're we're really you know very very fortunate with technology and uh with so many people who are trained and educated now looking at this to start to make a lot more sense I, i think we're you know we have a very primitive relationship um to to two enormous things on the earth one is the 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 middle of the ocean, right? You we've tracked the top, we've tracked the bottom, but Mm. you know, what's in the middle of the ocean, like is, is a vast unknown and, and same thing, you know, that's the physical world in our minds though, and how this all works, you know, we, we are really just, you know, barely starting to, to get into that. So it's fun. You know, I'm, I'm really keen on all of this neuroscience and, and how, um, uh, New ideas around emotions. There's a there's an incredible author. Her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's written a book a couple of years ago called "How Emotions Are Made," and she completely explodes the historical view uh, that comes from the idea that there's like universal human emotions. They show in the face. This is a very very like just broadly accepted concept for like 20 plus years. She is a neuroscientist and psychologist. I believe she's she's in Boston. Maybe at maybe at UMass uh, or Massachusetts General Hospital, I I forget, and and Harvard. Uh, Her her work is really amazing. It's a a constructive view of emotions that that we get there. It comes many different ways. We might label it one way or another, but there really is no universal experience. Your fear is not my fear. Um, How you express your face is not going to be the same way. And so uh, you know, I, I I love that in the realm of of science and exploration that we're. We're we're blessed to be in this period of um, you know such innovation in technology mm-hmm. and so many people that are accessing education and uh, you know through our wealth and prosperity it's it's really quite you know quite quite a quite a renaissance in, in knowing ourselves um, being um, you know just a, a, a fantastic place that we're we're spending so much of our our treasury. Collectively, mm-hmm. to, to fund science around who we are and how we think, and and you know what is what is well being, mm-hmm. um, what is mental illness? Does it serve a societal purpose? I, I I saw an incredibly interesting piece out of UCSF that looked at entrepreneurship, um, and the the correlation of anxiety, depression, drug abuse amongst entrepreneurs is very, very high, disproportionately mm-hmm. high than the general population. So like, maybe we should be celebrating <laughs> mental illness because that's <laughs> our salvation. Uh, if you look at it from that lens and that's what these, these, these doctors at UCSF are writing about. So, you know, turn, turn, these, turn what we think we know upside down. That's one aspect of thinking about thinking, not being fixed, being curious, and really being open right having an open future again not that our our ideas are are mm. are, are set in stone that's just really it's it's uh uh part of our challenge, I think in relationship to money mm-hmm. uh, specifically, you know, we have fixed mindsets about money. We're not all well-educated. I love that, that you and Pomp are talking about money as a life skill. And I mm-hmm. love what he's doing in terms of his work to teach people about, you know, how to have money. You know, mm-hmm. our conversation here started off about how we're being in relationship to money. Mm-hmm. Those two things are really closely aligned. So, you know, big high five to Pomp and, and, and all of his great ideas.
0: Yes. Yeah, That's a great point. I'm interested on this study between intelligence and addiction and substance abuse. I'm sorry, between entrepreneurship, because I'd read a similar study that said people with higher uh, IQs, I'm pretty sure it was IQ, it was a a measure of intelligence, tended to be more likely to drink and do drugs and these other things. So I wonder if there's a connection there between the entrepreneur and uh, the intelligent. Hey, everybody. or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. You mentioned uh, you learned a bit about Hindu philosophy and it's a relationship to thinking about thinking. It's funny you brought that up because I, that's really the, one of the main themes to this show, I think, is you know we always just think money is it's one of those things like um you've seen that commencement speech this is water have you ever read that or seen that where he talks about oh. two fish are swimming by each other one day and the older fish says to the younger fish hey so-and-so how's the water and they go on past each other and the the younger fish thinks to himself, like what the hell is water you know like it's it's hidden in plain sight, everywhere and nowhere, all these analogies. So I think money is similar. You know, it's it's the economic water in which we swim. Very important to life in general. It's the most I think it's the most important tool there is, frankly. Um, and you can see that when you just think about removing a different different tools from your life, like how much it would impact you. <laughs> if you pulled money completely out of your life, like you really couldn't do anything. It's just whatever you've got at home is about it. Um, So very common, very important, but we don't stop to think about it very much. And to, I think really t- that question, what is money? That is a, a step towards metacognition. You're thinking about what is thinking because you're thinking through money oftentimes. You know, So it's like taking off the glasses and examining them a bit. Um so that's a long-winded introduction here but I wanted to to get a little philosophic. You mentioned this realization you had that I am nature. Right? Like you've always loved the nature you're growing, you're living in, but then you had this realization that I am nature. And I had this thought recently that we are each of us is just the universe engaged in self-reflection. Right, because you are nature i am nature but here we are talking about nature talking about each other and how we relate to the world so do you think i mean i guess how do you reflect on reflection what do you what is all this what are we doing why are we talking about it why are we talking about money and consciousness like are we just trying to move towards trust faith love like I guess it's a kind of a two-part question. It's like, what are we doing and what should we be doing?
1: Well, you and I are doing what we should be doing, and that is having a conversation for action about this together and sharing it with other people. Mm. Uh it it this matters. It matters to me. Uh I'm 50 years old. And uh, you know, I, I used to think I had it all figured out. Uh I heard you and, and Jeff Booth speaking the other day. <laughs> It sounds like you're mellowing with age, kind of like realizing how little, you know, like, well, why is it that, you know, all my executive clients over all the years, everybody's so right all the time. And why did I fall into that? Mm. Why did I fall into the trap of chasing power and money when when i was very very young i was blessed to have um two clients at the same time one of them the culture was of empowerment these were very creative people the other one was an entire culture of fear Hmm. and there was a time where I chose to go chase the powerful people. I was 22, 23, four years old. And, you know, it took me two decades to realize I was doing that. And then all along wondering why I wasn't feeling fulfilled in the work that I was doing. Um, You know, there's a certain point where, um, you know, either, either, you know, you, you see that and you do something about it, or you start to not be living. You mm-hmm. you start to not be in aliveness. So, and, and that's another one of these courageous kind of you know points. And so, you know, Robert, I didn't think we would get kind of to this you know level here, but you know, this stuff matters. Looking back for me, my my hope is that that. You know, this is available. Everybody wants it, but yet nobody really, in in our culture, especially in our work environment, which consumes a lot of our time, Mm -hmm. nobody's really talking about this. And and certainly, if they are talking about it, it's unique. There are leaders like people like Jeff Weiner at at LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Um, There's 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 others. There are people that are really leading by example um, in this in this realm. And I think, you know, that they, uh, they're they also being incredibly successful. My, my friend, uh, Godard Abel in San Francisco, um, one of the top entrepreneurs in the United States, according to Ernst & Young, um, and his success of, of, you know, incredible business success and savvy, he creates really beautiful cultures that people really love to be in. Mm. And so, you know, to me, what, what the real big aha was, was I've been very, very blessed Um, with, with uh, all sorts of, of gifts um, that have been given to me, some that are innate, some that I'm just really, really lucky. And so, you know, it's, it's, I feel sort of obliged to, to, to teach now that I'm 50 years old and, and be honest, share, you know, where I've stumbled and fell. And a big part of it was, you know, not really taking a good look at why I work and, and kind of Earlier, you got me thinking about you know next to your love, what's the most dear thing? It's your labor, mm-hmm. your 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 service to other people. That can be your children. That can be your family. But you know, commonly it extends out, and and so um, you know that that really you know how we are working. Um, some people would argue and and it seems like more and more people are choosing to declare which is a speech act Mm -hmm. uh i declare that work is not working for me Mm -hmm. and this is this whole great resignation this you know period that we're in right now after after uh shutdowns of businesses now we're trying to recreate reinvent and create a new conversation about what work is um one of my good friends um his name is Joe Galvin he runs research um uh at a uh, ceo uh forum uh thousands of ceos all around the world um and they're all trying to sort out you know how, how do we manage to this like do we have people come back part time what if they don't want to come mm-hmm. what if they do want to come but they're not the ones we want there it's a really 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 big conversation right now about, you know, how we are working and making it work in a way that, 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 that is, is, um, you know, meaningful for people. Uh, lots of people do these gig Jobs, it's it's quite a miracle what's happened in so fast with these delivery services of all sorts, and people just kind of wanting to dip into work and dip out so they can you know manage their time and their other responsibilities. So like the innovation is there, and I think the 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 the, the pull for uh, looking at what you know how we coordinate, how we collaborate together, what work is. Um, these things matter and and so um, to put a finer point on that you know the the intent of work is something that that I'm spending a lot of time and doing work and service around helping uh, organizations to create more powerful and authentic missions in the language that we're commonly using mm-hmm. but really that that if you if you look at it a little more closely there's a intent in every single person of the organization. And what we're doing is really creating alignment around that, working with leaders to make sure that their human intent for why they are on earth is very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And and that's sort of like a a step, step in the process. And then it's creating a intent for the entire organization and then also working with the people inside the organization so that we can create like a real human connection on why we are all here. And by the way, it's okay if this our intent here in this organization does not line up to who you are. There's thousands of other places. There's so mm-hmm. many jobs available right now. Why is everybody afraid of losing a job? Like mm-hmm. right? that's there's another relationship to money that I think is really oh, I can't leave. Now well, what if? You mm-hmm. know, I would, I would argue, you know, we have a relatively unsophisticated relationship to ourselves and our labor. Uh, you could call that conscious relationship to money. Uh, call it what you will. You can label it a whole bunch of different ways. It doesn't matter as much. But the point is that what do we do? We grow our wages and then we fill it up with consumption Mm-hmm. And then we end up in a spot where we wonder, like, I've got all this stuff, i am got to store it off-site, and, mm-hmm. and I don't use any of it, and and who am I? You know, mm-hmm. I think all those things are really, you know, uh, are, are, are very palpable if we slow down for a minute and and take a look. Work is not that fulfilling for most people. The Gallup polls are showing that, like, 25% of people really love the work that they do. The other 75% have either one or two feet out the door. And like 30% of people have two feet out the door, but they go to work each day. And now I'm not that's not a judgment, you know. That's that's a big question of how one work environment, whether it be knowledge work or retail work or, or services work. Does make it work for people, and those there's examples in all of the various different sectors. But then so many don't. I think that really is what um, uh, you know. I'm called to do where where my intent in my life is now is to look at at what is leadership and what is uh, work. And uh, you know, frankly, you know what I wanted to share is you know I think what you're doing actually is helping uh, me to anticipate. The future, uh, seeing the trends, seeing you basically, I mean, you you work for free making these videos inside of the, the platform environment and and whatever other relationships you know that, you, that you've got that you've created on your platform. But effectively, that's like a really good way to start to look at Jeff Booth's total deflationary paradigm shift. Like, mm-hmm. so what do people do in a world where dynamics of labor and costs of things uh, are totally different. I I think you know this sort of Robert and I'd love to talk about your mission and I heard you and Jeff talk a little bit about your purpose. I'd like to 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 hear more from you. But there's something about how you're approaching this with your service that's creating something that it is quite a, you're you're creating abundance. So um yeah, I'll, I'll throw that out there. Um you know what what does what does work look like you know in that deflationary world and does this environment that you're navigating now in that sense I remember William Gibson said the future is here it's just not widely distributed. I I, I get a glimpse of that here you know seeing what you're doing.
0: Yeah I think you're absolutely right I am I would say that The career path I have taken for myself is definitely on that edge of the Overton window where it seems many people are headed in that, you know, I'm I'm digital, I'm non-local, I make my own schedule, you know, just entrepreneur to the hilt. Um, And, you know, this book, I've, I've talked about the book a lot, The Sovereign Individual, it actually anticipated that the general job market would go this way, that we would move away from A world of one, you know, a company man, like the guy that goes to work for one company his whole career to something that looks much more like uh, what they analogized to show business, actually, to making movies Mm. where people come together for certain projects and they work on the project together and then they become free agents again and they go and you have this amorphous network of, you know, agents and projects that just sort of um, coalesce and disband as needed. And I like This connection you make, actually, where you said love is kind of the first order uh, principle, I guess, guiding us, right? You're taking care of your kids or your family, or it doesn't have to be kids or family. That's just most people's thing that they love. Some people love, you know, they idolize things, right? People may love money or anything else that um, what I would describe is just what you place highest in your personal hierarchy of values. That's... Hmm love um it's also a definition for god that jordan peterson's used so we always say god is love which is an interesting connection but this idea of that maybe this is one of the greatest things we can do as humans and i feel very fortunate in this regard is that to be able to perform a labor of love which is to kind of bring the two together right where you get to wake up and say what am i going to do today well i'm gonna work on this thing that I love to do. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I, and for me, my friends would make fun of me and say that I've always been really good at homework, really like to do homework. And so now <laughs> I kind of do homework for a living. You know, I'm reading books, I'm doing research, I'm thinking about all these things, blending all these concepts and ideas together that I get from just the smartest people in the world that I get to talk to you. Um, And so that's really interesting. I wish that, and I guess this is part of the Bitcoin vision, is that in a hard money world, all of those economic benefits of innovation are distributed more evenly, right? Whereas right now the central bank and those closest to the fiat uh, currency spigot are benefiting mo- the most from the economic abundance, entrepreneurs are creating. Honest money would flip the script on that and let those uh, gains be distributed evenly, such that people would not need to place as much emphasis on work to make ends meet. Right? We whatever we have a forty-hour standard week here in America, which is way over or under depending on who you are. But that number could realistically be something way lower. You know, We live in this modern age of uh, tools that radically empower our productivity, but we're not seeing that reflected in our cost of living. In fact, we're seeing the opposite due to fiat inflation. People are working harder, working longer, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that contributes to this dissatisfaction with work. Um, but if we get back to an honest money standard, then I think you'd have more people doing what is meaningful to them on a day-to-day basis and i can't envision any way that could be worse that seems like it would be better <laughs> better for the people working better for the people that are benefiting from those services like just again speaking from my own perspective i think i do good work because i'm really doing what i love like this is what i would be doing if money were no object and in fact i started doing this as if money were no object effectively or just it was just a passion project but it became a real business very quickly. So I'm fortunate uh, to that. And I am paid now. I should make that very clear. I do have sponsors and all of that. So it's a real thing. Sure. Um, but to that end, my... And maybe to tie this all together, is like that is my mission right now is to shine light on the corruption of money because it's causing people in my estimation to at the very least need to work more than they need to, probably doing something they don't want to do. And I think it also has all these second order consequences we talked about earlier that like uh, it degrades your your character, your culture, you know, all these things that we really live through and for. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, I guess honest money makes a more honest world. Um, I want to redirect this back to you now, though, because I'm really interested in the story you told about starting your career and you took a dark turn it sounds like you 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 went in pursuit of power versus in uh, in pursuit of um something that would have been a little more in the light I guess from not knowing the story fully what okay I'd like to know first of all what was that what were you what was the fork in the road for you secondly. What is the conversation you wish you could have with 22-year-old Neil now? Like if you go talk to him right now, what would you say to him about that experience? Uh, And I think this will be very useful just for the younger audience. that's trying to figure out their path forward um, in terms of career, entrepreneurship, money, etc. And yeah, we'll just start with that. I have one more
1: question about it too, but I'll ask you after that that's great i've never been asked that question before um what would fifty year old neil say to uh twenty two year old neil um yeah you know, I, I think i would like to take some time to really think that through that's a that's a i, I to go off the cuff i think would be uh would be more along those lines of corrupt then (laughs) this is this would be something to consider but i I will tell the tale of that that choice and that choice was no choice because i didn't even see it was a choice Mm. that's the real curious part for me robert that like there i was having the opportunity to put my labor um into a group that had proven and and this is trust the the they had shown me time and again that they trusted me, that they created a culture of empowerment in their organization. And then there was this other organization that I perceived as being better. Mm-hmm. And, and quite frankly, uh, that was, that was a, another view of a future an assessment of that organization, a characterization of it that, and this is the very important part, was ungrounded. An assessment, that view of the future that we've been talking about that is the mood, it can be grounded or ungrounded. And, and grounded in the sense, can it be supported through assertions, mm-hmm. uh, some sort of factual You know view so factually this culture of empowerment these folks had said you know we trust you we'll be back in the morning everything's gonna be great we're not worried about you one bit you're gonna do great work you always do uh you know that was the language there over here was somebody sitting over my shoulder all night long is this done what about this what about you know Mm -hmm. a a totally different environment and so um the facts were right there this is an example of blind trust Mm -hmm. In direct contrast to the facts being shown to me, I made a choice Mm -hmm. or or I I, I believed something. And so if we look at at, at trust, we can now start to make some distinctions inside of what trust is. And again, this is the work of of Fernando Flores um, and and, uh, his his, um, uh, partners in writing these concepts up the faith the love the authentic trust that we were talking about before is in relationship to the breakdown it works with it it repairs it breaks down it repairs it breaks down that's a very very human very authentic process i'm talking about me at age 22 in with evidence completely to the contrary blind trust, believing that that was something, you know, that was, that was good for me. It was, it was an open future, but it was an ungrounded assessment that was basically not seeing reality for what it was that these people were loving and kind and empowering. This was a a culture more that was driven by fear. And so, um, you know, this is, this is, um, You know, kind of the basics. Like you, you sometimes choose what's familiar rather than what's unfamiliar. Um, You know, my my household wasn't you know completely settled. Uh, We're we're Italians. We're a little high strung. We're entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. We're anxious. You know, we're kind of we're we've we've come through the great filter here and survived Mm -hmm. all of this because you know we're wily and uh, and and we know how to figure stuff out. But that gets in our way too. So now when I'm choosing to go work in a environment that's unfamiliar, that's stable. Well, of course I go into a chaos, fear, anxiety provoked, cause that's what I know. Mm-hmm. So I would say, you know, perhaps to my young self, like, you know, be aware that, that where you came from is not your future. Uh, be aware that, that you do have a past and that you're dragging it into the future. Uh, you're dragging it into the present moment and you're creating a future based on that past. And just be aware of that. It's not a bad thing. We all have pasts. But but the meaning that we make out of those pasts, and especially if we really don't consider those pasts, that can really, really, really trip us up. And I think that's a lot of, you know, if we look at, at, at psychology and, and we look at a lot of the healing arts, that's what so many different people are doing now um, in so many different modalities. And and back to, you know, understanding our minds from that neuroscience point of view, we've also got a world full of healing traditions that are coming to the fore and, and these amazing ancient healing traditions that are now, you know, gaining, gaining um, uh, attention and gaining actually, you know, scientific view into uh, them. I, I find that's really, really interesting. Um, I, I had a great conversation with a lovely friend of mine, who is deep into the plant medicine side of of the world, uh, Peru, and and, uh, has deep relationships down there with real people that he's, you know, really connected with, not tourism visiting once Mm -hmm. he's lived there, been there, spends a lot of time down there. Well, over here, I'm working with a genetic nutritionist for one of my family members. We're using plants and naturopathy to address our biology that we've identified through genetic sequencing. Well, Mm -hmm. what are the Folks down in the Peruvian jungle, doing they're they're using sort of medical science and plants in the same exact way. So we're we're doing the same thing. We're just doing it from very very different points of view with very different traditions, right? So I think that you know also is something that that um, you know I would I would share with my twenty two year old self, and I'm I'm glad actually that that twenty two year old self. Would go, yeah, you know, I'm, I get that, and that is just being open and navigating and and mm-hmm. reading a lot and getting exposed to lots of different ideas. I remember I would read Mother Jones magazine and Adbusters magazines, these incredible like countercultural, you know, magazines. At the same time as reading Forbes and and you know reading business magazines and seeing the the common threads. The, the conversations that were happening from two different points of view to be able to create my own point of view and synthesize, you know, my own point of view. So uh, that 22-year-old self kind of knew that. Uh, and I'm I'm proud of that 22-year-old person. Um, but, uh, you know, he probably would have benefited by a little more perspective on, on uh, not choosing the harder path. That was easy uh, for me. But choosing the path that was maybe um you know not so obvious i guess Mm. that's how i would put it like look twice you know Mm. should be be deliberate and intentional Mm. with the choice And, and i want to bring that back up and my intention is not to put it back to you, but you and Jeff talked about your purpose and mm-hmm. how you got started and, and what was driving you. Um, I'd love to, you know, hear that and, and, and ask a very specific question. Like, wh- what was the moment where you realized that, like, you'd be doing this right now? Was there a moment and when way back in time where you're like, I'm going to be talking with Neil now <laughs> in 2021? <laughs>
0: no you know what's funny um thanks for sharing that that was helpful um i think it was it's there wasn't a watershed or inflection moment for me necessarily um i'll just say that it's very funny how much what the the old saying if you want to hear god laugh tell him your plans right it's amazing how much life can diverge from what you envisioned it at some point in your life, but that can be a really good thing. It doesn't have to be a bad thing necessarily. So I um had this vision for myself when I was younger that I just wanted to be kind of a discreet, privately wealthy hedge fund guy that, you know, just was off the radar, but very well to do, you know, out of the spotlight kind of thing. And when I started, and I was actually doing that, I was operating a hedge fund at the time when I got into Bitcoin, but I started writing based on what I was learning in Bitcoin. I've always been a big reader, but I'd never been a big writer as much. Started writing and talking about it. And that's when I began to get a lot of feedback from people. You know, People are just like, oh, I
1: love your writing, I love your talking, I want to hear more, 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 more. And, and remember, I, that that's when we met. When I read the the Bitcoin and in, in Zero piece, I was like, I gotta meet this guy. This is like, this (laughs) is inspired, astounding. I mean, I read everything, man. That was astounding work and I'm really glad that I did reach out and I appreciate you, you know, being willing to, to jump in and, and, and meet and, you know, it's been fun to navigate these last couple of years together as as in our, in our way that we have, it's really been uh, beautiful. I really, you know.
0: Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And I, I I recall, you know, that was a dark time for Bitcoin, actually. I released that in March 2020. So Bitcoin was trading at, I don't know, 5000 bucks maybe yeah. after the big liquidity class. So that that was
1: and still is my most popular piece that I ever wrote. Um, and let me just give it a plug. I mean, those that are listening to this that know Robert Breedlove <laughs> or Twitter, like, please read the the zero in Bitcoin piece. It is it is an an amazing work that I think, well, uh, I, this will stand the test of time. Thank that's, you. That is much my much. that's that is my that is my my vote. This is a piece that is very worthy and really of all the stuff that I read in those days trying to make sense of this whole thing. There was a lot of opinions. There was a lot of of writing. This was a piece that really stands out in so many ways and caught me thinking about like. V- It was, it was, it was a, it tapped on something ineffable to read and like, Mm. think about the number zero and like, you cannot ever, you can only make that once and that this was something parallel and I was seeing it, you know, that's a part of this inspiration that creates a mood that when it drops 30%, It doesn't even bug me, you know? So maybe I owe it to you. You've helped to create my Uh, mood, man. (laughs) Well, I'm happy
0: to contribute to your diamond hands. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I'll just say that I stand on the shoulders of giants, you know? It's all just everything I've read and learned and absorbed over the years. Um, But I think, I hope that piece did adjust. It was just me trying to answer the question intelligently what makes Bitcoin different because if something is infinitely replicable it not it's not very intuitive that that thing could make good money you know it's like what do you mean it's just copy paste code you can anyone can make a bitcoin how can it be Bitcoin so um, you know
1: hopefully that that helped answer the question well um, but in there somewhere is is your you know your ultimate, Intent, your your calling here, your mission that that desire to learn, the desire to synthesize. If you weren't a writer, I'm I'm still really surprised by that because you're a very 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 good writer. Uh, I would have thought that you were, you know, writing your whole life, given how you write and the the clarity and the. Uh, amount of v- voluminous and good writing that, that you do. I mean, your pieces are deep and long and, 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 and well, you know, organized um, as a former English major <laughs> a long time ago, I, I I would have thought that you were a long-term writer. You, this, this was not, this is a new practice for you to, to um, distill I, these things down. I
0: uh, publishing like this was definitely a new practice for me. I should say that I've always been, reading and writing has always been my thing though. I like even yeah. in high school and, you know, I was the kid that if you were put in the group project together, five kids are going to write the paper. I would just show up the next week and like have the whole thing done and be like, here's the paper guys. They're like, Oh, thanks. They so, loved you in college. You're, uh,
1: your, your friends in college.
0: Yeah. I, I did it a few your times. Um, so it's, it's definitely like my, my thing. I, I mean, I'm just into it. Um, but I never had the impetus to write until Bitcoin, you know, I was never publishing or I was just reading a lot, frankly. So, um, but you know, you, you mentioned that it touches on something ineffable. And I think I can't take credit for that per se. I think it actually is Bitcoin, you know, like this idea of an unstoppable idea, something like zero, which I didn't even know, by the way, I was looking for an analogy for a technological idea that was unstoppable. And I just huh. kind of like stumbled upon the number zero. And then when I started to study the number zero, I was like, holy sh**, stankies. this thing is, the government's hated it. You know, they tried to ban it. It's at the root word of cypher, you know, which cypher punk is the ethos that led to, to Bitcoin. So it- there's all these wild connections. These- wow. was critical to encryption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but... Anyways, I'll, thank you for that. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. What what I heard you say, I want to dig into this a little bit more. There's the saying in, that we have in Tennessee came to mind: "Measure twice, cut once." Where you said you would tell yourself to be deliberate, take your time, you know, realize that there's a choice. What do you think causes the blindness? Um, caused your blindness in that moment. I, I'm sorry. I realized I didn't answer your question earlier. Um, there wasn't a watershed moment for me to take this career path. It was a series of those moments. So kind of like the moment we had where you connected with me about zero and there were, it was a series of those that ultimately led me down this
1: path. So hopefully that answers that question. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Well, it shows, I mean, you, you put something out there, you were courageous. Uh, you were creative and uh, back to this, you know, where we kind of, took this is from this deflationary you know new paradigm that's coming like how do we help each other mm-hmm. uh, i'll throw out there you know um there's there's like identity there's reputation and transactions i'll throw out there that not so much money i, I don't know if it's money that is going to be in that future but those three things uh have some sort of relationship to what you're talking about like you robert um you know, uh, he, he, um, writes well and he's consistent, right. And lots of people start reading it and around you then form something that, that becomes very attractive that, that, you know, you're, and it's reputation, I think that is a currency here of some sort. I don't know if it's money, you're, you're way more sophisticated in the, the use of this language to define things, but there is some sort of currency of reputation now that, um, you know, uh, uh, allow me to be so bold to just say, like, it's really starting to hit for you. Like, I saw you on Tom Bilyeu's show yesterday, like, I'm a, mm-hmm. yes, you know, like, it's starting to hit like this thing now becomes you have you have some sort of uh, uh, there's momentum um, behind it. And, and it was a courageous move to just give and share your ideas. And look what happens. I think that's presages what matters In some aspect, especially the sort of the knowledge aspect uh, uh, of this 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 future economy, I'm I'm very curious about, like, you know, the the unskilled labor. Mm -hmm. Um, If robots are going to do everything, you know, I I think I may have shared with you, I I built and sold a 3D printing business to Autodesk with some partners a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Got deep into that space. What is manufacturing? How is this all going to work? So, like, for for the, the unskilled labor, well, what we have then is time, right? And back to this idea that then what do you do with lots of people with time? Well, there's, there's, there's service to be done. There's mm-hmm. old people and young people that need to be taken care of. Old people can take care of young people. We see that happening out in the world, and it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Instead of old people being stored and young people being stored, you put them together, and you don't need people to come to work anymore. They take mm-hmm. care of each other, like and yeah. they and they create aliveness together. That's a beautiful example too. Um, but uh, the other piece I'll throw in there that I that I wanted to say earlier too is like, well, what about like tax credits, right, mm-hmm. for someone that donates their time, right? Should not you have an equal, if it's an hour, you know, of time that you give, should you not then gain a credit that's effectively, you know, balancing out your wages, if you're not earning wages, but you're giving time, then Mm -hmm. you don't pay taxes. You know, there's something there in terms of how we're measuring this. And that was one of the questions that came up, you know, in in other programs, like, how do you measure all of this, uh, you know, world that may be coming our way, we need to, we need to be considering that. So I'll throw those out as, just things that I think help us to look at what's going on around us and see the future and be able to anticipate a little bit, you know, into that. So uh, thanks for letting me just riff. Cause it, you know, I wanted to just rather than forget those ideas, get them out there on the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, first. thanks for,
0: for putting them out there. Um, I'll draw one connection. This is comes from Jordan Peterson actually, where he says that reputation was the original store of value, actually. Um, okay. And the example, if we're hunters and gatherers, I bring down a woolly mammoth. I can't eat the whole woolly mammoth, clearly, but so I could share some of the woolly mammoth with my guys, my tribe, and I'm effectively establishing reputation, uh, uh, engaging in an act of trust, frankly, giving you food now, trusting that you know, in six weeks when I, when you bring down the woolly mammoth and I don't have anything to eat that you'll share with me. So this idea of great reciprocal altruism sort of bootstraps itself into trade and economies and all these things. So
1: that's, that's sense, great. Your sense, I, of I was gonna say-
0: connecting to money has very deep anthropological roots.
1: That's that's really great. I, I I like that and and I got excited for a minute and I spoke over you so excuse me. And it has something to do with this this sort of corruption you said earlier. You said that word and it, and it really like it 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 landed viscerally that like how has money disconnected us from each other mm. in a way that makes that reciprocal altruism, it exists. You know, I was at a great fundraiser for our preschool last week. There was incredible people. I mean, can you believe like, you know, they raised like 60,000 bucks in 10 minutes from the crowd. Um, You know, that does exist and it's, but it's not the, it's, it's sort of the exception, you know, in some ways, or it's, it's sort of like, Oh, I do that on the side rather than that be the thing that like, and, and when I hear Ray Dalio speak, uh, I, I'm here in Connecticut now we're living in Connecticut um, and he's a neighbor and I'm around his people. Um, you know, his wife spends a lot of time in, in Bridgeport, uh, Connecticut doing, you know, service in there, like in the thick of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's, that's quite beautiful, but that goes back to like, there's values here mm-hmm. that are why we are, mm-hmm. how, how we are in relationship to money relates to who we are. You mm-hmm. know, it's that there's a good connection, a good glimpse of that of how it does work. So this reciprocal altruism, you know, that that would be the actually. So that twenty two year old self, the times that I have volunteered and spent times with kids and worked with kids. So much fun. And that's why I mean, I love having my kids. I mm-hmm. I set my whole life up uh, purposefully at 22. I've, I've never had a job. Uh, well, that's not true. For six months of the last 30 years, I've been on a W-2. The rest mm-hmm. of my time, I've been out just like making projects, creating businesses, finding people I love to work with, building things, connecting people together, and like, you know, making stuff happen. Uh, all for the sake of a commitment I made to myself a long time ago, and I'm really proud. Like, I wanna raise my kids. I really wanna be there and like fumble around with them. So I've always worked for home from home. This gift of COVID has been the kids are home. <laughs> They've been at school. <laughs> I've always been home. Now we're all home together, and while that's been challenging, uh, I don't know about you. What I've learned is like I've gotten like eighty percent of what I should get done done in like fifty percent of the time this last year. That's been a real eye opener in terms of like why do I work so damn much? Why do I spend so much time and energy like continuing to work? When, when it was good enough, there was like, you know, there was um, the back to the 22 year old, like perfectionism is a total loser. (laughs) That that perfectionist in your head is a total effing loser. Just when he pops up, just tell him that. That would be the advice. (laughs) That would have been great advice to that 22 year old. That is a saved me a lot of time, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> a, that's a
0: bitter pill for me because uh yeah, I deal with that guy a lot that's trying to, you know, just work and rework and you know, do more. And um, I heard yeah. this a long time ago, sort of tangentially related that the the path to success was to bite off as more than you could chew and chew as fast as you can. And so I used to I was always just Hustling yeah. on the way up, but now it's become a bit of a habit, you know. I'm I'm always packing my calendar and you know, so I'm 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 learning as I as I get older to start to simmer down a little bit, but it's definitely been an adjustment process.
1: Well, let me um, let me dive in. So I, I really made a choice. So um, you know, like I said. Financial success, like oh yeah, I mean, what a layup! I mean, this the whole post World War II United States intellectual property contract law property rights, like blessing. Mm-hmm. Thank you know, thank God for Bitcoin and and thank God for you know the the foundational principles mm-hmm. of this incredible nation. Which uh, are the same,
0: by the way, the principles underpinning Bitcoin in
1: America are the foundational principles are the same. I it's, it's been very enlightening to hear it put this way, property rights and, 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 uh, encrypting property. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all this stuff has been really useful for, for me to, to, to dig through the sailors conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love the Frisbee conversations too. Mm-hmm. Gosh, uh, wonder what a, what a wonderful, what a wonderful human being. And, and, you know, what a great fundamental idea that civilization, you know, and taxation are so inextricably linked together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, back to the blessings, like what I realized and what I tell my very wealthy friends, many some of whom are well connected to themselves and to others and to nature and to, you know, mm-hmm. the bigger stuff. But most of us haven't really been trained and very few of us have been poked to say like, hey, get on this. You know, this is going to do you a world of good. Mm-hmm. Um, back, back on the shelf, I've been reading uh, Clayton Christensen's book, How Will You Measure Your Life? Mm-hmm. Um, Clayton Christensen is a professor at the Harvard business school or was, he was also a Mormon, a man of, of deep, deep faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, he looked around like many and, and saw all his friends divorced, sick, addicted to one thing or another, maybe mm-hmm. many all at once. Like you have everything in the world materially. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but then it's back to the inner game, man. Like right. nobody's ever cared and and I, I just want to like say thank you to Jeff Booth. All of the stuff you guys did was incredible. But he said one thing that just like punched me in the gut. And, and I'll repeat it because I really think it's at the core of this. And it's it's about assessments. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tie it back to an, an, you know, an assessment is an opinion or a characterization. And a moods are based on assessments of the future, right? Mm-hmm. What Jeff said, though, that was really, really beautiful was I care more about what you think of me than I care about my own care that I express to you. And there's, there's an aspect of being candid in that, that really matters a lot. And, and so to be candid to my 22 year old self is, is kind of easy, but look at like, all of us, are we being candid with ourselves? Number one, mm-hmm. right. That's, that's hard. Cause we all have blind spots. Mm-hmm. This is where hanging out and having conversations that are, that are based on love. And, and Kim Scott from Google radical candor, her mm-hmm. book touches on this too. Like, you know, you're just an asshole and just like shit on people about how mm-hmm. fucked up they are. You know, that's one thing that's, that's one way to roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, The other thing is if you're coming at that from love, but you're honest, like she said, Sheryl Sandberg was to her about a presentation style that Mm -hmm. that she delivered. She said, you know, you're not being effective in front of this group. You're an executive now, you know, up your presentation skills was -hmm. the, was the guidance. Like that was coming from a place of love. I, I think that it's, it's, it's time that, you know, we all help because what I've learned, my, my wife is a, trained cognitive behavioral therapist. She's trained for a decade. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. She changes the lives of people, leaders in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. She completely unfixes their fixed mindsets is maybe, <laughs> maybe one way to put it. I mean, I'm talking like the smartest people in the world did not get taught how to think about thinking. Like they're really stuck in their own thinking and they right. limit their world as an outcome of it with just, you know, five or 10 conversations and her skills, she can like unlock people's aliveness. And I've seen her do it. She does it all the time. It's not like years of therapy. It's like five or six, 10 interactions to help people kind of see how they are. That's a candid kind of loving, kind poke. And and so now it took her 10 years to do this training. The, the, the health folks in the UK, it's like the Ministry of Health or the national health, it's something or another. They estimate that there's like 10 times more people that need this type of therapy than can get it from the professionals that are available out there. Hmm. So that's created a huge opportunity in here for something. And I would call it de-skilling the work. Hmm. Uh, And I learned this uh, from living in the Bay Area. We've heard the story of Rosie the Riveter. Rosie was not a riveter riveting was skilled work that like dudes that trained for years and years did. And it was like the guy that threw the bolt to the other guy that we've seen up in the skyscrapers of New York City. They were like the skilled labor in the thirties that constructed stuff out of steel. One guy had a specialty skill of like heating up the bolts. Another guy would pound them to shape. One guy would throw them. Another guy would catch them, hand it to the other guy. Then one guy would pound it in. Another guy would cap it off. It's like super skilled, complex work. Huh. Rosie was a riveter, but what they realized was it took like, I don't know, 180 days to build a big ship in, in like Sausalito, California. Um, and they were building ships all around there. It was the Kaiser Aluminum Plant, Kaiser Permanente that we know for healthcare. Yeah. Uh, the Kaiser Plant was, was the, you know, the people responsible for this. What they realized was if they de-skilled the work, turned Rosie from a riveter into a welder. They could de-skill the work and, and, and instead of men having to stay home, they could ship the men off to fight. The women came into the workforce from all over the place. They started making boats and they shrunk the time to make a boat down to like 30 days or something like that. So America cranked out more guns, tanks uh airplanes boats in every other country in the entire world during world war ii and this yeah. is like taylorism and scientific management all of these themes yeah, of like yeah, mechanical yeah, yeah. work coming to fore now how are we doing that in the next realm? Is probably the, the the big connection here, but also de-skilling the work of of mental health. There's an enormous opportunity for more people to either be skilled in this, or for other tools coming. Because you know, mental health is something that really you know uh, is a uh, it appears to be a big crisis and something that we need you know attention on. So that's that's something that's important to me, and and that's why I say like these things are worth talking about. It's, it's heroic when people share, you know, their, their dark side, it helps everybody when we share our failures, success, we need to, you know, overcome our strengths. I heard one person say, Hmm. overcoming our strengths is actually the really, you know, uh, uh, more loving uh, approach and and a more honest and candid approach to living, because it helps other people because everybody's struggling, but here we go all day long at work pretending that nobody's struggling. we got it all figured out, you know, to kind of loop that back around. I I think it's a mystery. I don't, I don't get it. So I, you know, I, I prefer to kind of talk about this and also do something about it by being trained. And, um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of that. You were saying like perfectionism, uh, time, uh, money. This is a question about our relationship to having enough. Mm. And, and what, what I've learned to loop this back around. So I, I've been lucky. I did so many amazing things and helped a lot of people and created value and, and was able to capture that value. I really purposely chose to go and surround myself and learn from as many people as I can in this realm because I'd made all this money and been successful and blah blah, 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 but like inside, like it just, I, it wasn't fulfilled. I wasn't mm-hmm. complete in some way. So I went to go learn. And, and what I learned was, you know, I was living very unconsciously for for lack of a better word, like just wasn't aware, making choices without knowing why I made them. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I learned is that, you know, there when you slow down a little bit and you take the time to reflect, choices become a little bit clearer. But we also see that that we're, in the language of the conscious leadership group, some folks, uh, Jim Detmer and Diana Chapman, uh, who've been on the Tim Ferriss show recently, they're both got some great interviews with Tim. These people really had a huge impact on me because they gave me some real good, loving, kind feedback that really woke me up. And they taught me about the fact that like, I can either choose to live in a world of abundance or I can choose to live in a world of scarcity. When it comes to time, money, love, and other things, that's one of their 15 commitments of mm-hmm. conscious leadership. And so, you know, long story here, but my, my point is that, that I kind of felt the responsibility to go try to find some things. And now I'm committed to, you know, sharing that and, and teaching with uh, other people and, and having these conversations because it's really fun and it, and it brings aliveness. And it was Jim Detmer that, that introduced me to that idea of Aliveness. Like that's a, that's a value for me. Like living in aliveness, being in aliveness. uh, Why would we want to do it any other way? (laughs) I mean, really, why would we not? Seems like the only way to live. (laughs) Well, it is the only way to live, but why are we not doing it? Why, why are we working against nature? Back to your idea. This is an example of us and our internal energy working against nature.
0: Yeah, I'm, I clearly asked myself this as well, and I, I do think it has a lot to do with the re- the reciprocity between what we create for ourselves. I kind of uh, this is a whole can of worms, but to try and say it in a <laughs> few words, um, you know, human there's an old quote that I really like that human nature is like water. It takes the shape of its container. I could, I guess I could modify this slightly and say that human character or human personality is like water. It takes the shape of its container. And I think the container itself is constituted by incentives largely, you know. And this is not to say people sometimes take issue with this because they're like, Oh, isn't that too utilitarian of a view of the world? Like people only no, respond it. to their incentives. Like, not really, because in order to even have the luxury of philosophy and morality and beliefs like the, the time to sit here and talk about it and reflect on it, as you've said, we need to meet our basic material needs first, you have to buy the freedom through innovation and wealth accumulation to be able to advance yourself, you know philosophically or or morally. So I mean my sense is that we have just we have bad incentives that we've poured ourselves into and therefore, you know, certain people end up in these pursuits of power or money, or they think that, you know, get the girl or get the car, or whatever the external validator is, they think that is the path to happiness. Um, But I think it's largely, I think the blind spots are contributed to by poor incentives, I guess you might say. So I'm wondering, great. Your 22 year old self had some blind spots you had an attraction to this power or whatever you observed in this organization that you said there were plenty of red flags, but you still chose to go down that path. You know, I guess, were you, was there something in in reflecting on it now? Is there something that captured you back then? Was there something, because I know like, you know, it's cliche that the girl can be attracted to the bad boy or the guy can want to do, you know, be like James Bond or like, be it, there can be this allure or attraction to the darkness or power, you know, in star Wars, the power of the dark side. Was there any of that in this path for you? And and if so, like, Uh. how would you, again, I'm just thinking about for younger audience to benefit from your wisdom, having gone through this, if you pursued the wrong path, then like, what indicators were you blind to and what path should you have walked in retrospect?
1: Yeah. I would say, you know, to, to be, to be really candid, I I don't look at it that way. I mean, I took the path I took. It is, I'm here. I'm very, very happy that my life, you know, that I have created uh, is, is just, you know, the life that I've created and I've created it intentionally. Now, did I, do I have regret? Uh, I wouldn't really look at it that way. That's, that's, you know, um, uh, our, our Abrahamic traditions, you know, again, the water we're swimming in those two fish, Mm -hmm. right. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg, who created an incredible concept called nonviolent communication. That's what he's known for. He was a a peace mediator all around the world. The man's work is incredible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it, it was he that shared, you know, the, the 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 Zoroastrian culture in the sort of Middle East created this black and white God and devil concept that we've inherited into our culture. It's it is the Abrahamic traditions, mm. Islam and, and Judaism and, and Christianity. It's where this idea comes from. And it is a it's a cultural uh artifact from like 8,000 years ago that still is defining our environment, uh, inside of work. So that's the context. And we're blind to that because cultures, you know, these are things that are kind of difficult to, to, to get context around, unless you like history, um, you know, and you dig on this stuff. So that's what I surmise from, from, from doing a little bit of digging. Um, and so, you know, what, what was really there, um, what i've learned in terms of my motivations and and i I've, I've put a lot of thought into this you know like what was i doing like i it wasn't so much about like like money was never a problem like i did work and money would show up all the time like surprising amounts sometimes uh sometimes none sometimes they're just vaporized when i thought it was like a sure thing right that also happens which is a fun like <laughs> sort of like the, the magic of of money in there too but what i what i really came to see Robert, and it was a really huge aha, was that I was motivating myself, my like my intrinsic rewards mm-hmm. in the language of Clayton Christensen, my intrinsic motivators, different than my hygienic motivators. That's my title, my compensation, my wages, etc. My intern, my intrinsic motivators were coming from a place of fear. That mm-hmm. like I would create stories, and I would even say it in language. You know, to, uh, I had a, a, a woman I was living with at the time, like, you know, if, if I don't get this deal, we might have to go eat out of garbage cans. Mm-hmm. Like that was really kind of like the game I set up in my mind, even though I had savings. Like right. what I did with money was I like I squirreled it away as if like I didn't have it and created a game. And like I, it was related to this perfectionism. It was related to not seeing reality and not having really good mentors that that gave me the candid like, hey, you're doing fine, man. Just, you know, mm-hmm. bring your love to the table like you do and like keep doing that. man. don't worry about that. Don't be afraid. Don't make up these silly mm-hmm. games for yourself. You know, so uh, that's kind of what I wish I had, you know, to to have somebody say, you know, well, back to emotional intelligence and and moods. I spent a year studying emotional intelligence with Daniel Goleman and his organization and and really wanted to understand, you know, what, what this was all about. What I realized is that I mean, emotional intelligence, ha. I mean, I barely had like emotional literacy, let alone the practices and and the the the, the recurrence to yield any sort of intelligence out of it. So that's where I was like, I had a big aha, like, oh, and then by the way, oh gosh, like I, I used to be an athlete. I was like a championship skier and stuntman and boxer when I was younger, like super, super physical. Um, but like mind and body, I realized we're, were kind of like, have you ever seen Baron Munchausen, Robin Williams character in Baron Munchausen film that Terry Gilliam did Okay. You know what I'm talking no. about? It's it's a fabulous. You know Terry Gilliam was the guy that was part of Monty Python that did all the animations, and okay. he was kind of behind the scenes. He wasn't on the camera, but he makes movies, and they're all, all of Terry Gilliam's films are incredible. But there's a scene where Robin Williams is the king of this uh, kingdom, and his head is like on a plate, and it's like all logical and trying to keep everything together while his body is just like chasing the queen's body around, just trying to like grab her and grope her, you know, like, so, so like, I really came to like realize that between fear and between not really like having anybody that, 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 that guided me towards like slowing it all down and starting to think about things, uh, look at the past and look at, you know, what, what is influencing you know how i'm thinking um and 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 that really helped me start to do the first step of emotional literacy and that is just like allow my incredible senses this mechanism this incredible body my eyes my ears especially like the feelings you know that come up uh just to trust them just to identify that they actually are happening and get like aware that they are happening um because that sort of body intelligence is is really really powerful it bypasses the mind you know yeah. it's like this is the lizard brain working yeah. and it's like lizards you ever see a lizard man like you can't get close to a lizard no matter what you do you know they're they're really they might not be that smart mm-hmm. but man you can't get your hands on them you know not very <laughs> easily right they're they're survival you know so getting to back to trusting my own body and realizing how much like you know, insight is there. And, and then, well, you know, the, the original training was, well, then, you know, this feeling means this, that's what Lisa Feldman Barrett and her work on constructive uh, emotions or the, the constructive theory of emotions totally blew up. This feeling is not an emotion. It's just a thing that triggers and I may think about it and I make meaning out of it, but all those things aren't really like, mm as cut and dried as, as it was thought to be this universal uh, uh, what did they call it? It was a universal theory of emotions that every human, they went to Papua New Guinea and found people that had never seen anybody. And they had these facial expressions of disgust and fear. And it's all the same. That was Mm -hmm. the idea. Apparently that's not quite so. It's kind of like baloney science now, Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, um, and that's, that's really the beauty of good science, I think, to, to, you know, give a shout to science. Um, but, you know, back to the motivations, like when I started to realize like fear was how I was impelling myself forward, then I was able to make a choice. I, Mm -hmm. I, I looked at the shadow in the Jungian sense Mm -hmm. and i Conscious Leadership Group was kind of influenced by Jungian work of of looking at persona and shadows and looking at how, like, you know, the voices that are competing for attention in in our minds. There's many of them. I've got all these incredible, wonderful personas that, that really do have a beautiful aspect. They're not bad. They're not, they're not, they're me. They're not a negative thing. They really are like a survival mechanism and they're trying to help. They're just doing it in a way back to what Jeff Booth was saying. is like the exact opposite mm-hmm. of what, what I'm trying to get at. So I love when you guys, you know, touched on that. And for me, that was a huge opening. Like, oh, wow. You know, there's a lot of heart in the show here. This isn't just about money. This is about me relating to money. So, you know, thank you to Jeff Booth for, you know, creating that opening here and being a great leader in all of his ideas like how smart and how much heart that guy brought mm-hmm. to everything, you know, yeah. it's, it's what's helped to create this conversation too. And I hope that, you know, that just, you know, resonates out and, and, and helps other people, um, you know, to navigate for themselves.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's, there's, uh, definitely hopefully some heart in this show <laughs> there's a lot of mind. But we're definitely trying to
1: explore all aspects of being here. Um, I'll say, Robert, this show is, you know, your courage and your heart and your intent. And that's what, you know, it's its very unique. There's only you. And I was going to say that, too. It struck me that, like, there's eight billion of us and they're also zeros in Bitcoins. Like, there's, there's no two yous. There's no two of that 8 billion people out there. This is such like to think that, well, we have like, there's like 300 million people or more like in dire poverty on the earth, you know, and, and then how many people are just, you know, barely getting by Um, that is such a wealth of, of, of human energy that I don't know what to do about it. Like we hear about universal basic income, um, you 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 remarked that you know nobody likes their stuff to be redistributed. You like to be redistributed too. Hey, great, tax breaker, yeah. you know, awesome. But yeah. you we don't like to be redistributed from. I, I think there's a reckoning here. I mean, that's my that's what I'm anticipating. If I'm looking at the trends, you know, I feel blessed. Uh I don't give back enough, you know, to, to society based on what I've gained, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. Um I've realized that I'm kind of a pig in that, in that respect. And, uh, you know, so what, and here's my big question. If if you remember, I kind of wrote in my notes, like, there are a lot of institutions that are corrupt. Mm -hmm. I think it's up to us to understand what institutions, you know, either need to be preserved, conserved, reinvented, or created from whole cloth because we need institutions um, if I, if I see this and I'm looking at it from a very primitive view, I'm not like a government guy or like into political history as much as I am into more human history. So I don't know. So I'll, I'll pose that question to us. Like what institutions, if the, if the central banks, you know, are corrupt uh, are there aspects of it that we preserve um, is, is Bitcoin an institution I don't know, how do you define what an institution is? Or is it reflective of the type of institution that comes? Mm. And I'll try to tie this together. I was listening to an interview uh, on Real Vision. Uh, Roel, Paul and that crew do just incredible stuff. I got to meet some of the guys down in Miami at the Bitcoin mm. conference. It was so fun to see people you know, that, I, that, that have given me you know, great, great ideas and, and, and good conversations. Um, one of the fellows was interviewing Daniel Kahneman uh, mm-hmm. Daniel Kahneman is in a Nobel Prize-winning uh, psychologist. He won a Nobel Prize in economics, and you know his whole thing is about biases, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what his work. and He had a friend, and they worked together for years. They both had different views on what biases were, but they just kept this conversation going together, totally disagreeing, but doing so in a way that was respectful mm-hmm. and productive because they won a Nobel Prize. I mean, yeah. in another field, which is like. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Well, you make you know, a great point that individuality is even more scarce than Bitcoin, right? And we should embrace that each of us is unique. Um, and real, I mean, I think that's what markets are intended to do. Really, that's what the comparative advantage is. It's like you go specialize in what you want to do. Everyone else will do the same. We'll all trade, and we'll all benefit from each other's labor of love in an ideal world. So.
1: Yeah. Um, of well, institutions that need to be conserved and, and where I was going with the Kahneman thing, I remember Kahneman yeah. was talking yeah. about there being one judicial case that they looked at 180 judges um, and and the variety of judgments against that crime was huge. Mm-hmm. Right. When they fed it through machines, it came out much more constrained in terms of the sentencing uh, that were here. And that, this was Kahneman's contribution to uh the the institution of justice which apparently is totally broken by this assessment Mm -hmm. uh kahneman was saying this is how the, the question to kahneman was so psychology has influenced economics. How is economics going to influence psychology? Mm. And he said, Well, now in the trends of big data, we have all this econ- econometric data now that we're applying. And this was one example of 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 sort of a way that AI with lots of data could actually make a better decision than a judge. And, 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 a, and the judicial system is an institution, right? So this has got me thinking about, you know, a big question. And I don't even know hardly what I'm talking about, but I think it's the right question. Like what institutions do we preserve or invent for this new world? If central banks and other things are totally corrupt and, mm. and it looks like they are. And here was a surprising thing I read today from George Gilder. I don't know if you follow I do, George I like Gilder. Gilder. Yeah. I mean, boy, he, this man has been writing good stuff for a long time. Yeah. Uh, fascism this word is kicked around a lot yeah. I've, I've seen it used you know my definition of it is like sort of state-run business you know mm-hmm. uh state-run industry people use it in lots of other different ways lately that i that i don't know if it's connected or maybe it is and i don't understand it mm-hmm. but gilder wrote that what we're doing now is you know and and i want to tie this to your idea of the sovereignism. I'll, i also want to uh make sure that you know being respectful of time here too um so sovereignism he's talking about fascism in the sense that this system right now is operating in a way that that you know businesses are acquiring so much power mm-hmm. and 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 wealth is being concentrated so much up into this technology you know mm-hmm. innovation uh uh realm which which I love and I've been a part of and I respect mm-hmm. and I see but also like oh cuz only a few people are really benefiting from that and so is that an example of fascism? It's like he wrote that today in the newsletter and I was like, "Oh man, I never really thought about it that way." So like that's a big aha that, that that points to, you know, I'm the problem. I'm the one that's been building tech companies all these years. So, you know, back to, you know, considered choices. My my incredible mentor and friend Jeff Wilmore uh told me the other day. He said, you know, be profoundly connected to the dark side of human nature, mm. but also see people as their calling. Mm. And like that, and, and what Jeff Booth shared about, you know, being more concerned about you liking me than, than me really giving you my honest assessment of what's going on that might help you. Like, that's been my last two weeks and and you know that's what I feel really you know blessed to be in these kinds of conversations to be able to learn this myself and and to be able to you know have an incredible platform like hanging with you to to be able to share this with other people so I think you know that takes us to a point that uh you know i feel really i feel really happy and uh and proud like to <laughs> hang with Robert Breedlove and, and talk <laughs> philosophy man The bitcoin philosopher like wow like i think i was being a little philosophical it feels really great man it's it's it's, oh, it's a cool. realm that is is worthy of of dwelling in in relationship to who am i you know in yeah. relationship to money yeah well i appreciate you
0: bringing your philosophy into the conversation today uh it's been really interesting uh, that last point i think it was definitely related to jungian integration of the shadow, which is something I'd I'd like to learn more about. Um, Yeah. I mean, this is a great conversation. We'll have to do it again. So maybe you can just
1: let my audience know where they could find you in case they want to learn more about you or your work sure so i'm happy to connect with people on twitter i'm neil passero on twitter i'm on linkedin and also the deep company is my business we're working with executives around calling and mission and making sure that there's really you know the authentic authenticity and the heart of leadership really comes through in organizations so yeah thanks robert i'm, I'm glad to have a chance to share i want to spell your
0: last name just for my audio audience P-A-S-S-E-R-O in case they're looking me up on correct. Twitter. Yeah, um, Yeah, man, this is great. I'm happy to explore doing some more stuff together that the question, what is money definitely opens up a lot of other questions like, you know, what is value? What is exchange? What is government? So happy to go down those rabbit holes sometime. Neil, yeah. thanks for coming on the show.
1: Great. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me.